June 13, 1983 was a night like any other for Cindy Paulson, who's a 19-year-old sex worker living in Anchorage, Alaska. Cindy was out doing what she normally does on those nights. She was looking for business on a street corner when she was approached by a guy who was pockmarked, nervous looking and small, and he had a terrible stammer. When Cindy and the man had agreed on a price, he asked her for oral sex and they got into his pickup truck. As she was in the process of giving him oral sex, she looked up to find that he had a 357 Magnum looking down at her. The man then produced a pair of handcuffs from underneath his seat and snapped them on Cindy's wrist. He then drove off through the leafy suburbs of Anchorage. The truck eventually pulled up outside a large blue-gray ranch style house and the girl was forced inside. She was dragged down to the basement and once she was down there, she was confronted with a menagerie of icy stairs. Not from other people, but the basement walls were covered with sporting trophies. This man was a hunter. A serious hunter. Cindy was then handcuffed naked to a pillar in the center of the room and was repeatedly raped and sodomized for hours. The hunter then lay back down on the sofa and fell asleep, leaving Cindy naked and afraid and chained to a pillar in the middle of the basement. When he finally awoke, Cindy was told to get dressed, and she was re-handcuffed and driven to Merrillfield Airport, where the truck pulled up alongside a small blue and white aircraft. On the way over to the airstrip, the hunter had told Cindy that they were going to fly up to his cabin in the Alaskan wilderness. He boasted that he had taken lots of girls up there for fun, and this is when Cindy saw her chance to escape as they arrived at the plane. She pushed through the driver's door that he had left open and ran towards the lights of Fifth Avenue. As she ran, scared, naked, and still handcuffed, she could hear her captor shouting, Stop it, you bitch! Stop or I'll kill you! Cindy never looked back. As she reached the road, she saw a truck's headlights approaching her, and she waved it down with her hands. The driver was a 36-year-old man named Robert Yount, he slammed on his brakes, Cindy clambered into his truck cab, and he drove her away to safety. Now, Cindy begged him not to take her to the police, even though he kept saying, you know, what happened? You need to go to the police. Cindy refused, but asked to be dropped off at the hotel so that she could call for help. The man obliged, let Cindy out of his truck cab at the hotel, and she called her boyfriend and then sat in the hotel room and waited for him to come help her. Robert Yount being, a, at this point, a, a good Samaritan and an all-around good guy, was nervous because he had obviously picked up a 19-year-old girl who was naked wearing handcuffs, screaming that someone was going to kill her. He continued on to his, onto his job further up the street and called the police from there and reported the incident. The police arrived at the hotel and found Cindy there, still handcuffed, afraid, and muttering that somebody was going to kill her. After they took Cindy in for an examination at the hospital, they were able to corroborate her story of being raped and abducted, and she was taken to the police headquarters to be interviewed. Cindy gave the detectives a detailed description of her assailant's house, his car, the plane, the way he looked. It didn't take the police long to identify the man as 40-year-old Robert Hansen, a married baker who owned a thriving business in Anchorage. 
less than two hours after Cindy had made her daring escape. Police arrived at Hanson's home and were confronted by the man who looked exactly like Cindy's description. The police informed Hanson of the nature of the allegations that had been made against him. He looked astonished and readily agreed to accompany the police to the station. Hanson was interviewed there by police officer William Dennis of the sexual assault unit. So Robert Hanson was cooperative. He was polite. He didn't really demonstrate any of the characteristics that are usually associated with guilt by the police, although he was strangely calm for someone that was falsely accused by his admission. Hanson gave a detailed account of his movements. He even had an alibi. He said that his friend, his wife and his family were away in Europe on a summer trip and that he had been with his two friends, John Sumrall and John Henning, at the time that Cindy was accusing him of abducting and raping her. Both men, when interviewed, backed up his story. Hanson readily agreed to let the police search his house, his car, and his plane and signed waivers. After the police searched all of these places, it became clear from Cindy's description that she had been there. However, when it was all said and done, it came down to the word of a respected local businessman who was an upstanding member of the community and a member of his local church with an alibi against a 19-year-old sex worker with a police record. When Cindy's, this coupled with Cindy's refusal to take a lie detector test, convinced Officer William Dennis that she was lying and he closed the case. However, Officer Greg Baker, the policeman had taken Cindy's complaint initially, felt like Cindy was telling the truth, but he couldn't prove it yet. However, it wouldn't be long before the police would have to take a more serious look at Cindy Paulson's case, as well as seriously examine the fact that it looked like there were a lot of dead bodies of sex workers piling up around Anchorage, and maybe the two were connected. You are now listening to Murder V. Rope. I'm your host, V. Welcome back, you guys. I am, again, your host, V, and this week we are talking about the notorious Butcher Baker of Alaska, Robert Hansen. I just wanted to come in and give you guys a trigger warning because this has a lot of rape and assault and murder, and this could be a sensitive listen for some of our viewers. I don't recommend this for your kids, which I would never recommend any of this for your children. So I think if you let your kids listen to this, then... I maybe don't want to hear about it, so don't write any fan letters about how you let your 11-year-old listen to Murder Be Wrote. That might not actually be cool, but I wanted to start by talking a little bit about Robert Hansen's background. That seems like the easiest place to start, but before we do that, I want to discuss what Alaska was like in the 1970s because you kind of have to ask if you know anything about Robert Hansen and this notorious story how was he able to do this unchecked for so long well let's get into how Anchorage in the early 1970s was like a frontier town when they had their share of growing pains construction began on the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline in 1973 and it was completed in 1977 but during this time 
like 28,000 additional people were working on the pipeline that weren't necessarily Anchorage natives or lived in Anchorage up until this point. Oilfield workers make good money. And while many pipeline employees were from Alaska, others came from other parts of America or other parts of the states, the lower 48. The high wages and created like a boomtown condition in Fairbanks and Anchorage, and unemployment dropped to nearly zero in both cities, which is almost unheard of. Off-duty workers spent lavishly and crime rates spiked. There were mobsters, drug dealers, sex workers, topless dancers. They all followed the money to Alaska. So in this area, 4th Avenue in Alaska became a string of endless bars and the avenue was known as the longest bar in the world. There were several topless bars in Anchorage and the dancers and sex workers worked on 4th Avenue lived essentially what would be considered a high rise, a high risk nomadic lifestyle. And often while working a while in Alaska, they would hang out there. Then they'd move back to Seattle, which was relatively close for a spell. Sometimes they travel to Hawaii for work and then come back to Alaska. So few people really noticed when a sex worker disappeared. And if someone did notice, it was rarely reported to the police because of the transient lifestyle. So this pool of transient young women willing to essentially climb into a stranger's car in exchange for money created the perfect storm and atmosphere for a monster like Robert Hansen to flourish. Law enforcement in Anchorage and throughout the state wasn't really prepared for this rapid influx of people either and the increase in crime in the early 1970s. The population of Anchorage exploded and the city really expanded past what was considered the city limits in every direction. The Anchorage Police Department patrolled the city itself, but the Alaska State Troopers with a smaller force were not only responsible for policing the portions of Anchorage outside of the city limits, but they were also responsible for trolling most of the state of Alaska. And when you think about it, that's a pretty big area, especially when you now have all these additional people living outside of an area where once before there may not have been that many people or places to patrol. So criminals were quickly learning that they were less likely to be caught if they just committed the crimes outside of the city limits. And by 1970, the Alaska state troopers hadn't really developed any protocols for dealing with sexual assault cases. And Alaska didn't have a, you know, up-to-date crime lab for processing evidence, which I will say that in 1970, there wasn't a lot of the high-tech stuff that we consider now in a crime lab. So I don't know that it would have helped spectacularly in this case. But the Hansen case essentially changed all that. But it came at a really high price. Robert Hansen grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere in Pocahontas, Iowa, which is like 125 miles northwest of Des Moines. After he graduated from high school, he joined the Army Reserves and he received military training at Fort Knox in Kentucky. Hansen returned to Iowa and he worked in his father's bakery in 1959. But we'll backtrack a little. Robert Hansen's time in Pocahontas, Iowa was not great. He had horrible acne to the point that it left his face permanently scarred as an adult. His parents were very, very strict. And Robert was actually born left-handed. And they beat him and punished him and forced him to use his right hand. The cause of this, and maybe it's speculated that some of the rewiring that happens when that happens to children and it's not uncommon 
for that to be a thing because way back when or not that long ago maybe 50 years or, and earlier it was considered I guess we would say I wouldn't say demonic but it was considered to be like a mark of the devil if you were left-handed so you will see a lot of people say that if they were born left-handed their parents would do things to switch them to make their right hand more dominant or people that went to like a Christian school where they had like nuns or that type of thing, they would wrap them on the, the knuckles with a ruler to prevent them from using their left hand. So they were forced into being right-handed. This is the same for Robert. And some of the brain rewiring with this is what people sometimes speculate is responsible for him having such a debilitating stutter on top of everything else. People that went to school with Robert say that he was a loner. He didn't really have a lot of friends and he was very shy because of the acne and the stutter. Um, women that he really liked and thought were pretty weren't into him because he wasn't like the other guys and he didn't have friends and he worked in his father's bakery and didn't really do anything else. So after he graduated high school, of course, he got on the first thing he could to get out of Pocahontas, Iowa. For today's bit of psychology on serial killers, we are going to talk about a very specific type of killer. These killers are referred to as thrill killers, and this is a type of serial killer that derives immense satisfaction from the process of murder. That is, it's the acts leading up to the murder, such as stalking or tracking, tracking their victim rather than the killing itself. They come to crave the euphoric adrenaline rush that's provided by stalking and capturing the victim. And tracking their prey becomes an addiction for them, much like a narcotic would. The primary motive of thrill killers is to induce pain or terror in the victims prior to killing them because that's the part that provides the intense stimulation for them and the excitement. The victims of thrill killers are generally strangers. Although the killer may stalk them for a period of time before the attack in order to feel the excitement of the hunt. Normally, the attack of a thrill killer is swift, and there's generally no sexual aspect to the murder. Once the victim is dead, a thrill killer typically loses interest in him or her almost immediately. Therefore, postmortem mutilation or necrophilia is rarely engaged in by this type of serial killer, and this pattern is really a stark contrast to kind of the hedonistic lust killers that we hear about, like Jeffrey Dahmer, who like to engage in post-mortem sexual activities with bodies so you don't see that type of behavior from Robert Hansen specifically because the thrill is not in the killing or watching the person die the kill is the thrill for Robert Hansen is in capturing these girls and then setting as he goes on to tell the police later setting them free in the wilderness around that cabin and then stalking them like they were essentially big game animals that is the part of it that was thrilling to him that was the adrenaline high that Robert Hansen is chasing it has nothing to do with actually killing these people in any way. So thrill killers can abstain from murder for long periods of time and they become more adept at killing because they gain experience and refine their skills. These people are typically meticulous and highly organized in the planning and execution of their crimes. Thrill killers are also perfectionists and they often have narcissistic personalities. These types of traits may drive them to pursue the goal of a perfect murder or delude them into thinking that they will never be caught because they're just that good. 
the way this kind of exhibits itself with Robert Hansen is because he was able to compartmentalize the part of his life that was about murdering women and still have like a wife and children and this bakery and upstanding skills. So he was having to plan these murders in times when he knew he wouldn't have to work, but he also wouldn't have his family there. What he has also done was soundproof his basement and put an area in the basement where his wife and kids wouldn't go so that he has that space for them in the house. But not only does he have that space, but he's then sending them away on trips. For instance, um, in some reading I had done, Robert Hansen's wife, Darla, is from Arkansas. So she would routinely take the kids and because they were doing so well financially, she would go visit her family back in Arkansas, but she would stay for long periods of time because she was a teacher. So when school let out for the summer, she would take the kids and they would pack up and go to Arkansas. And she would also do this for spring break or whatever, or winter break or what. So essentially any time that she was not teaching, she would pack up the kids and leave. And Robert Hansen was basically left to his own devices in this home. We also see this play out because Cindy Polson, who was able to escape, discussed with the police in her statement that when she was in the home handcuffed to the pillar in the basement, she noticed in the home it looked like he was not the only person that lived there. It didn't look like a bachelor pad to her. It looked like a home where children and other people lived because she saw women's things and toys. But she said when she was chained in the basement, it seemed very quiet in the home as if they were alone, which tracks to what we would assume from this type of thrill killer because he has organized his killing schedule, quote unquote, around the ability to have his family out of his out of the house and away for long periods of time so that he can act out his sadistic fam fantasies. So the inability of a psychopathic thrill killer like Hansen to feel compassion or sympathy is also what enables him to view the torture and killing of his victims as sport. So basically what this means is that for Robert Hansen, these women that he was picking up, these sex workers, or what he referred to them as prostitutes, he didn't think of them as people, right? He thought of them as something that was a disposable object. It was something that was not important. They weren't people, they were things. They were, he looked at them and he saw a hunting trophy. I'm going to do whatever I want to this person and then I'm going to set them loose in the forest and kill them like game or like animals because that's what I view them as. So as a psychopath, he does not have the ability to see these people as you or I would see them as someone who doesn't deserve to be gunned down like an animal in the middle of the forest. He saw them as less than people. Another example of this is the Zodiac Killer, who basically just went around San Francisco shooting people and then sending notes to sending notes to the police and taunting them, but then he was never caught. So for psychopathic thrill killers like the Zodiac Killer, but more importantly, like Robert Hansen, the process leading up to the act of these murders affords them the greatest satisfaction in their lives. Now, the other part that I wanted to discuss is the fact that we often talk about his wife, Darla, and we talk about his kids. And I guess you could ask the question, how does a man who essentially has children and a business and a wife, well, how do they not know that he's a murderer? How was he able to get away with it for so long? 
without his wife knowing or having any real evidence that he was taking these women to the basement or to these other places and then killing them. Robert Hansen's wife and kids did not know that he was a serial killer because Robert Hansen had gotten very good at compartmentalizing that part of his life. So people ask, how is it that you're able to hide it so well from your wife and kids that you're a murderer that they have no idea that you've been a murderer for 10 years? Darla was deeply religious, deeply, deeply religious. And anytime that Robert Hansen had skirmishes with the law, for example, when he tried to steal a chainsaw, she basically stood by him and she would take the kids to jail to visit him when he had these stints. But we also know that he was verbally abusive to her and the children. And because she was so deeply religious, that she just kind of felt like this is what the Lord would want her to do to stand by her husband no matter what. So according to Leland Hale, who is an author who wrote a biography on the life and crimes of Robert Hansen, he describes Darla as a deeply religious woman, as I said, who earned a master's degree in education and she tutored children for income. Uh, Hale said that when he met Darla in the aftermath of Robert Hansen's murder convictions, she said that she, quote, knew he was up to no good, end quote. But she just thought Hansen's dirty secret was picking up hookers in the middle of the night before he opened the bakery. She also thought that if only he'd dedicate his life more to Christianity, that he'd get sorted out. But like most psychopaths, his church stints only lasted for a few weeks after whatever trouble he had gotten into, is also what Darla told Hale. So what she's saying is that he, because does not, he doesn't have the capacity to sympathize with the other feelings that people have around him, he understood that he needed to keep up appearances and he didn't want his wife to leave. So he did the thing that she asked, but he would only do it in stints because again, you, a leopard can't change its spots. A tiger can't change its stripes. You can only mask it a bit. And that's what he did. He would go to church to appease her and then that would kind of fall by the wayside. Darla described their marriage to Hale as less than amorous. The couple lived somewhat separate lives and that included them actually keeping separate finances. So she wouldn't have known by looking at their bank statements or anything like that if there was money amiss or if he seemed to be spending quite a bit of money or if he was buying new guns or it seemed like he was purchasing a exorbitant amount of plane fuel. These are things that Darla wouldn't have known. And because the children would regularly leave with her, they weren't in the home to see really any of this. And this is why no one was home when Hanson took Paulson to his house, raped her, and then held her against his will. He in fact felt so comfortable that nobody would be home that he took a nap on the couch for several hours undisturbed. So again, I just wanted to point out that in the aftermath of this, Darla did divorce the man, but she had essentially turned a blind eye to 20 years worth of horrible things that Robert Hansen had done. She told her neighbors that she would like to stay in Anchorage, but she didn't see how she could raise her kids there after all that had been revealed about their father. So this goes to show you that these type of killers, thrill killers and psychopathic killers, hedonistic killers, have the ability to be very smart and cunning. They learn from their earlier murders what to do to make the kill more succinct. They get better at killing as time goes on. And they also learn how to mask and compartmentalize that part of their life so that 
the facade that they put on with their wife and their kids and being upstanding church members and pillars of the community allows them a bit of cushion because if someone comes forward and says something seems amiss, who's really going to believe it? It's hard to believe that some pockmarked, small, 40-year-old, average-looking white man who enjoyed hunting in Alaska and had a bakery was also picking up sex workers every night and then murdering them in a cabin that he flew them to on his plane. Looks can be a bit deceiving, but I think it's also interesting sometimes how people seem to always ask the question, well, why didn't his wife and kids know? Well, the goal here for these serial killers is to make sure that no one knows. And having your wife and your children be a front for that is really the biggest part of that. You have to keep up appearances, which means there's really no way that they can know about the other part of your life. They're not going to be accomplices to you being a serial rapist and murder. There's no way they're going to agree to that. So you have to keep them in the dark. So when he came back in 1959, it was only a matter of time before old tensions would flare up. In 1960, Robert was arrested for setting fire to the bus barn at the local school. He was convicted of arson and sentenced to three years in prison. A, psych a psychiatrist diagnosed Hanson with infantile personality disorder and said Hanson imagined doing violent things towards the girls who had rejected him all those years ago in high school. Two years later, another psychiatrist reported that Hanson's antisocial behavior had approved and Hanson was paroled a year early. Hanson soon met Darla Henriksen, who was studying to be a teacher, and they married in 1961. Hanson then took a series of jobs and bakeries in Minnesota, North Dakota, and they had an okay stint. But about four years later, in 1965, Hanson was in trouble again. He was arrested for shoplifting from a sporting goods store, but Darla persuaded the pastor at her church to vouch for her husband, and the charges were dropped. The Hansons, seeking to make a new start, packed up and moved to Anchorage, Alaska, where Darla took a job as a teacher and Robert worked as a baker. Shortly after that, there was an incident where the business or something that they owned burned down. And when this happened, they collected a $30,000 insurance policy. Robert used this money to open his own bakery so that he didn't have to work for other people. And he also was able to then parlay his job as a baker into enough money to have his own plane. So at this point, we also learn that Robert was a pretty serious hunter. This is the thing that he took solace in as a kid when he was going through being teased and being ostracized. He was actually really, really good. And he basically had records for shooting mountain goats and caribou and doll sheep. Don't ask me what a doll sheep is. I don't know. But I will put a picture of one on IG if I can find it. He soon met and became hunting buddies with two men. Uh, one of them, John Sumrall, was a well-respected Anchorage insurance man. So he was doing all the right things to become respected in this community and really give himself a fresh start. The problem of all of this is, well, after he got the fresh start, Hanson just escalated the crimes and used this image that he had as a front to commit them. In 1971, Hanson approached an 18-year-old Susie Heppard as she got out of the car at her apartment. He pointed his gun in her face and said, shut up, sweetheart, or I'll blow your head off. 
Susie screamed and one of her roommates called the police while the other roommate yelled at Hanson and told him the police were on the way. Hanson still pushed his gun into Susie's back and forced her toward the street, but when the police arrived, Hanson ran away into the night. The authorities easily apprehended Hanson, but he was released on his own recognizance. A month later, a grand jury charged him with assault with a deadly weapon. But three days after this incident and before he was charged, Hanson kidnapped a topless dancer and took her to a cabin on Kenai Peninsula where he raped her. On the way back to Anchorage, he stopped the car, pointed his pistol at her, and told her to start running. She pleaded for him not to kill her, and Hanson finally relented and took her back to Anchorage. But to keep her quiet, Hanson demanded that he that she give him her wallet, and he wrote down her parents' names and addresses and told her that essentially he would kill them if she reported the incident to the police. If Hanson had known her father was an Alaskan state trooper, she might not have been so lucky. On Christmas Day, when the half-naked body of a college freshman was found in a ravine near where Hanson had taken the dancer, the young dancer decided that she couldn't remain silent. She went to trooper headquarters and reported her abduction and rape and identified Hanson from a photo. Hanson was arrested again, and the latest charges were added to those already filed against him. On December 29th, Hanson was arraigned and held on $50,000 bail. Hanson's family minister, as well as John Sumrall and another influential friend, appeared as care to witnesses for Hanson and stated that he would not harm anyone and that the dancer must be mistaken. Hanson's attorneys, of course, attacked the topless dancer's reputation and pointed out that she used drugs, classic victim blaming in this scenario. The charges in the case of the dancer were finally dropped, and Hanson received a five-year sentence for assaulting Susie Heppard. He would be eligible for for parole when doctors determined he was psychologically fit. A psychiatrist diagnosed Hansen at this point with schizophrenia and said Hansen would commit violent acts and then not remember them later. Hansen learned how to manipulate the prison system and was a model inmate, effortlessly convincing psychiatrists and everyone around him that his condition had improved. He was released to a halfway house after serving only three months and soon he was allowed to move home with his family. Hansen owned a boat that he kept in a small harbor in Seward, Alaska, which is about 125 miles south of Anchorage. Megan Emmerich was last seen July 7th, 1997, 1973, folding her laundry at the dormitory in Seward. Police believe Hanson murdered her and buried her on the shore of Resurrection Bay near Seward. In the summer of 1975, friends drove Mary Kay Phil to Seward. She got out of the car and they never saw her again. Troopers believe Hanson also buried her near Seward. A few weeks later, after Mary Phil disappeared, Hanson lured a dancer from the Kit, Cl Kit Kat Club on the Old Seward Highway near Anchorage. He drove her to Chugosh State Park, raped her, and then let her go. The woman reported the rape but refused to press charges. The trooper who took her statement notified Hanson's parole officer, but Hanson claimed that he and the dancer were on a date and the parole officer let the matter drop. So, if you're like me, at this point, you're infuriated, right? All of these women are reporting being assaulted by this person, but because they're sex workers, no one is taking them seriously. And that is usually how people are able to get away with these types of crimes. Times were different then, but to be honest, they're not very much better now. A lot of times when people report rapes or assaults, if it's women or they're sex workers, and 
absolutely 10 times more if they are sex workers. The police don't treat the crime as seriously and they don't very often investigate as they should. So a lot of times we have sex workers who are regularly assaulted in the line of work and they just don't report it to the police. So in November of 1976, security guards caught Hansen trying to shoplift a chainsaw from a store in Anchorage. I'm not sure why one tries to shoplift a chainsaw of all things, but like many things in the story, it does not make sense. And I guess that just will have to be. The court sentenced him to five years in prison, which, by the way, is still more time than he got for the assaults and attempted abduction of Susie Hebbard. After serving 16 months, the Alaska Supreme Court reviewed the case and decided that because his other offenses were, quote, several years in the past, and since Hansen provided well for his family and was a respectable member of the community, he should be released, end quote. The judge who initially sentenced Hansen expressed outrage at the court's decision. Soon after being released from prisoner from prison, investigators believe Hansen committed a series of rapes and murders. So, a while back in this episode, I told you that Hansen opened his own bakery. So, by 1982, the business was thriving. He had the money to purchase this plane. And it really increased his ability to kill because no, he didn't have to drive his victims into the wilderness to kill them. Now he could just fly them there. And sure enough, the body of Joanna Messina was found in a gravel pit near Seward. And the second body was discovered two months later, over a hundred miles away in a shallow grave on the remote, in a remote road on the side of Anchorage. The second body, the second victim was never identified and she is referred to as a Klutna Annie. The two bodies were found so, par so far apart that authorities assumed that two different people had committed the murders. On September 13, 1982, two off-duty Anchorage police officers were moose hunting on Nick River when they found the remains of Sherry Morrow on a sandbar. When Alaskan state troopers arrived to examine the remains, they began trying to put together a task force because at this point, they think there's a serial killer prowling the streets of Anchorage and raping and killing sex workers. The police compiled a list of women who had been reported missing and then they created a suspect list. More than 30 names were on the list, including Robert Hansen, but as the months passed and no more bodies resurfaced or surfaced, the police kind of rejected the idea that it was an actual serial killer and decided that maybe the murder of Sherry Morrow was an isolated event. On September 2nd, 1983, the body of another woman was found on the Nick River near the spot where Sherry Morrow's body had been found. And the Alaskan state troopers were assigned to this case of Nick River murders. So this particular sergeant, Glenn Floff, he was convinced that there was a serial killer. So he had not rejected the theory and good for him. He really thought that there was somebody killing on the streets of Anchorage and he was right. So Robert Hansen at this point was at the top of his list of suspects. He ordered 24-hour surveillance on Hansen and Floth comprised a list of 22 missing women that he felt were possible victims of this murderer. Floth, to aid in his investigation, contacted the FBI's Behavioral, Service, Behavioral Services Division and asked for their assistance in identifying the murder. So agents John Douglas and James Horn came up with a profile for this murderer. 
they said that this person was a white male. He'd be between 18 and like 40. They said that in the profile that he would stutter. He would be an excellent hunter. They said that this unknown subject would be a hardworking, successful businessman, and his pri his wife is probably religious and not aware of what her husband is doing. Their profile perfectly described Robert Hansen's wife, Darla. The FBI agents also told Roth that their killer likely had a stash of items such as jewelry or clothes that he had taken from his victims and saved as trophies. Sorry guys, what you hear is my dog trying to get into the closet to record for me record with me because they are very loud when I try to sit out in the house and record with them. So we're going to get back to this. All right, and we're back. Now that I've gotten a chance to get my dogs all settled and maybe they won't bother me so we can finish this out. Sorry guys. Um if you're a pet parent, you know that they can be a little wild sometimes. So let's get back into it. So the police at this point are surveilling Robert Hansen, but they really don't have anything to tie him to these murders other than this FBI profile, which fits him to a T, but in America, we all have rights. And frankly, just because you fit a description to a T doesn't mean that they can just pick you up. So the police decide the easiest thing to do is try to crack, his, try to crack Robert Hansen's airtight alibi. They bring the evidence they have with Cindy Polson. They show them pictures. They essentially threaten both of the Johns and are telling them, hey, if he is a murderer and you have given us this false alibi, then you could also be accomplices and you could also go to jail. This is when the Johns realize that it might be time to fess up. And in lieu of going to jail with Robert Hansen, they finally admitted that they had lied. They made up their alibi, and Robert Hansen wasn't with them when Cindy Polson was kidnapped. And this was the break in the case that the police needed. They were actually able to get they were actually able to get a search warrant for his house after this came to light. They found a gun, which when tested was found to be a murder weapon that matched shell casings that were found with two of the other bodies. They also found a map of the local forest that had 20 sites marked. Four of these marks had matched the area where four of the women were dumped. So the police were not too thrilled when they thought about the idea of 16 additional marks that they didn't know about. As it was winter when they actually went into his house nobody could actually verify what these x's on the map were the ground was frozen so they couldn't dig anything up despite this the police railroaded hansen in letting him believe that they knew everything they needed to know and he spoke to them without his lawyer hansen made a deal with the police he said that he was that he would admit to the murders in return that he would not be prosecuted for any other murders and that he would be sentenced to life. And he seemed to be certain that that's what he wanted. Police taped this confession, which lasted, which lasted about 12 hours, during which he admitted to 17 murders. He also said that he had taken over 40 women hostage during the last 10 years, which he had released because he believed that they were honestly attracted to him. The ones that died were the ones that wouldn't totally submit to his demands. The one murder that seemed to excite him most, however, and the one that also made him famous, was the one of Paula Golding. 
After raping and torturing her, Hansen opened the cabin door let her and let her run away. After a few minutes, he took off after her with his rifle. He was hunting her and talked with great excitement about how she had run across some rather sharp rocks and cut her feet badly, forcing her to try to hide under a bush. He spotted her and called out her name. This frightened her and she jumped up and started running. Unfortunately, she chose open ground to run over. Hansen raised his gun and bang. All that was left was the burial. Robert Hansen is quoted as saying, it was like going after a trophy doll sheep or a grizzly bear. On February 28, 1984, Hansen was sentenced to 461 years in prison with no chance of parole. Women everywhere were disappearing for 10 years. And he got life in prison because, well, Alaska doesn't have the death penalty. The police suspect that he was involved in more murders, but they have no way of proving anything um, beyond what they have proof of. With the aid of the map, the aviation map that they found, troopers found human remains near 17 of the X marks on the map, even though he was only tried for four. What they also found in his house, behind his headboard, as well as a bag of jewelry. The souvenirs that the FBI agents told them in the profile they believed he would have, as well as a cache of weapons that he had inherited from his father. Hansen was incarcerated at Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward, and he died from natural causes on August 21st, 2014. So he really wasn't even in jail for that long. After his conviction, his wife and children moved back to Arkansas to be near her family. And I assume they never spoke of him again, I would hope. An interesting side note to this is that there were a few investigators that believe Hansen could be responsible for some of the murders attributed to the Green River Killer in Seattle which we will cover at some point on the show, but that is a very expansive case, and I'd like to kind of spread that out a little bit just because it's very similar in nature to this one. Hansen, however, has denied any connection uh, to those murders in Seattle. One good thing that did come out of this is that during the Hansen case, Alaska State Troopers began developing protocols for dealing with sexual assault cases and started building and supporting safe houses around the state for victims of abuse. Also, the Department of Safety in Alaska built a state-of-the-art $56 million crime lab for evidence processing. So, some good out of the bad. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in Alaska. A 2016 report by the Violence Police Center ranked Alaska the first nation, first nationwide as the state with the highest homicide rate per capita of female victims killed by male offenders. And according to a 2015 University of Alaska Justice Center victimization survey, survey 50 out of every 100 women residing in Alaska have experienced intimate partner violence, sexual violence, or both. And with that, that concludes our story of Robert Hansen, the Butcher Baker of Alaska. So guys, deep breath, shake it out. That's over and done with. That's a tough one. But I wanted to end the show on a good note. Um, so 
thank you guys for listening. I appreciate that you guys have been tuning in and just staying on me and continuing to encourage me to put out <laughs> the show more frequently. And I apologize for the laps in shows, but I promise I'm getting better. We will have new shows every week. I'm on it. I've heard you guys. We are going to ramp it up to 10,000. So thank you for rocking with me and hanging in there. Um, as usual, and as I guess always, there are a few ways that you can reach me. Um, if you would like to talk to me personally, my Twitter is at BJ underscore Burton. If you would like to talk to me, the show's Twitter is at MurderVPod. We'd love for you to tweet us, talk to us. I love interacting with you guys, and I love your your energy and the things that you say that are awesome. Um, if you'd ever like to be a show um, on the show or would like to come in and if you have or have any suggestions about other cases that you would like to see me cover, you can reach out to me that way. Um, or you could email me and the show's email is murdervpod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing to you there. If you'd like to reach out to me on IG, it is the same. It's at BJ underscore Burton or it's at Murder V Pod. Either way, I would love to hear from you guys. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, next week coming back, you can hear, um, I guess, my show of the week or podcast pick of the week, which we won't call it that. Sorry, but podcast that I'm picking for the week that I enjoyed immensely that you guys should also check out is going to be a viewers anonymous podcast. That is high shouts out to S. Foster and Scoots Bronson. Uh, that show is pretty dope. They uh, watch movies and things on Netflix, watch shows, talk about them. They had us on the show as well. And we, um, well, not us on this show, but us on the other show that I do, All Docked Up podcast with Chris and Penrose. They had us on their show a while back, and I really, really enjoyed it. So you guys should check out their shows. You can also check out uh, my co-host Chris and her solo podcast, Shenanigans with Friends. I'll put the links to that in the show notes, as well as Viewers Anonymous. Again, thank you guys for tuning in. And this, of course, is B, and this has been Murder Be 